Welcome to the Parental Development Podcast. I'm Leah. And I'm Becca. And we're two sisters, one with kids. And one without. One with questions. And one with answers. One who's a licensed psychologist. And one who just wants everyone to hear what she has to say. We both have a heart to see parents succeed and kids thrive. In this podcast, we'll be discussing a variety of topics, all with the goal of promoting conversation and learning. Thanks for joining us. Let's chat. Hi, everybody. Welcome back to another episode of Parental Development. We're just going to kind of dive in today. I think I did want to share, you know, on the last last episode, I talked about how I have a trigger when my face is covered, and I didn't know why. (laughs) (laughs) So last night, my our older sister, Sarah called me and said, I know exactly why. She told me that when I was young, our older brother, Jason, used to think it was funny to pin me down and cover my mouth with one hand and plug my nose with the other hand. And And I did not remember him doing that at all, ever. Well, I clearly don't either. I've repressed it or suppressed it. Um, (laughs) But if that doesn't tell you that your body like just holds it all and remembers, because that's what it feels like. It feels like I'm going to die. It feels like I'm drowning. And she said, <laughs> she said he used to do it to you all the time when you were little. So there you go. Oh Mystery solved. Mystery solved. Right. So Jeez. I thought that was funny. So today I think I want to talk about a concept called co-regulation. I think I've kind of mentioned it or said that word before. It all means the same, right? When I've said like they borrow our calm or we help regulate them. That's all co-regulation. But I think it's an important concept to know about and to understand how and why it works from like a brain perspective. But co-regulation has to happen before any kind of self-regulation can happen. Just again, like biologically, scientifically, you cannot because self-regulation is not just something like that's innate and that you just pick up. It has to be taught and that is taught has to start with co-regulation. So co-regulation really is just that idea of me or a person recognizing the emotional state of another person and them kind of like syncing up. And I'll explain a little more about that. But a lot of this has to do with a concept that I've talked about before as well called mirror neurons. And mirror neurons are relatively new, I think, from like a science perspective, like the 90s is when we started learning about them. So they're pretty common, like in my field. I don't know how common the understanding of mirror neurons is at like in the general population. I guess we'll see. (laughs) But (laughs) there's obviously we know there's like billions of neurons in our brains and there are different bundles. You know, they're like motor neurons that fire when, say, I want to pick up my phone there are neurons that fire in my brain that like tell me to do that. But what they discovered is mirror neurons that those same neurons fire when I see someone else pick up their phone. My brain fires in a way in the exact way if I were picking it up myself. And so it is, you know, if I see someone drinking a glass of water, something in the mirror neurons in my brain fire as though I am drinking a glass of water. And so when I talk about like we sync up, it's a legitimate neurobiological syncing up. It's not just like an emotional thing or like a 
empathy thing or anything like that. It truly is like your brain mirroring the neurons firing of another person's from another person's actions. Does that make sense? Yes, I think that's crazy to think about. And right. then my my brain is saying, what is the point of that? One of many things about the human body that I just don't understand and is fascinating to me is like, what purpose would that serve? You know what I mean? Well, it serves a lot of like, it's how we learn like imitation and emulation a lot. It's how you do like, um, there's a whole other concept called serve and return in childhood. So like when a baby smiles at you and you smile back, those are like mirror neurons a lot of times or when you uh even a, an older child comes to you and wants you to look at something they've done that's a serve mm -hmm. and you return that by responding to that so a lot of it i mean the purpose is a it's how we learn a lot of things is by mm -hmm. our mirror neurons firing and then those connections get made in our brain and then we learn how to mm -hmm. do the same thing that's empathy my ability to like understand what that's like from seeing someone do something or experience something, then I, because those neurons are firing. Um, but it's a lot of how we develop attachment and relationships, especially with young kids, is those mirror neurons and us being able to respond to them the same way and vice versa for them being able to imitate and emulate us in an appropriate way. And then if we get into co-regulation... So co-regulation is, again, just that of that syncing up where a, a person kind of experiences the same kind of thing or the same activation as the person that they're with. So co-regulation of a baby is rocking, you know, when a baby's upset, rocking, soothing, swaying, talking to them in a low voice. You know, we all have our baby voice that we talk to babies in. That's because right. we, <laughs> we know they respond better to a certain tone. All of that is using our regulation to regulate a baby. So most of us, unless you're in a not great situation, know that when a baby cries, we don't go in and scream at them because right. that's not going to calm them. We know that we do our voice low and we rock them and we ask them, you know, oh, what's wrong? And we do the whole thing and bring them close and use our regulation to regulate them. The basics of this, if you think like the first time this happens, is not only in utero, but, you know, there's that big push now when you have a baby for like skin to skin contact right away. Mm -hmm. um, where the baby comes out and they lay them on the bare chest of the mother usually. And that is purely co-regulation because for nine, 10 months, that baby and that mom are completely in sync. That baby mm -hmm. eats what mom eats, hears what mom hears, experiences what mom experiences, all of that. There's all kinds of research to say that an infant right out, right after coming out, knows the mom's smell, knows her voice, knows her rhythms. And so the reason we do that, we do that skin to skin is because all the research has shown that our heartbeats sync up again because they are generally synced up when they're in utero. And so our their body temperature syncs to ours, their heart rate syncs, syncs up to ours, and they calm based on our regulatory system. And so, again, there's all kinds of studies of, of babies who are born with breathing problems or temperature regulation issues, all those kinds of stuff, as soon as they get skin to skin with a, with mom who 
you know, generally is her system is okay, that goes away without any medical intervention. Because those, again, that's co-regulation where we are, we're just kind of using each other as this, like where we just kind of bounce off one another and and borrow each other's systems, for lack of a better Mm -hmm. term. Yeah. So one of the, one of the best videos I've ever seen to show this, and I sent this to you, Becca, a couple nights ago. It's a, it's a video that I cried like a child. I cried. (laughs) It went viral. Um, but it's a dad, some of you may have seen it, but it's a dad co-regulating his child while she's having a tantrum. And it is the purest, uh, video I've seen of co-regulation in a long time. I also love that it's a dad because I think sometimes dads don't get enough credit or enough like kudos for how important they can be and how, how vital Mm -hmm. they are to like that development. And they're just as capable of doing this as moms. Um, so I'll link that. I encourage you all to watch it because, you know, that's also a mirror neuron experience for the people watching it of mm-hmm. it is just so, I mean, it's heartbreaking and heartwarming all at the same time, but you can just feel what that dad is feeling of just this little girl is right. just not doing well at all. Mm-hmm. And she is kicking and flailing. And you can see him just when she's kicking, just put his hands under her feet not to mm-hmm. try to stop her, but just to make sure she doesn't hurt herself. And then she throws herself into his arms and you think it's going to be over because he's hanging on to mm-hmm. her. And then she kicks up again for whatever reason, something internal. And he just sits there with her. And you can tell he is doing all all of his things to keep himself in a good place. Mm-hmm. And she eventually calms. I mean, it was only, what is it, a five-minute video or something, seven-minute yeah. video. But even just what we experience watching that it is a, I think like a type of co-regulation, right? Versus we could find another video, I'm sure, of a of a toddler having a tantrum and a parent screaming at them. Mm-hmm. You could pay attention to what happens in in my body just as an observer of that, and I would have a very different physiological reaction to seeing that Mm -hmm. and not being involved at all. Right. I'm not the parent or the child in that, but watching that where, yep, we both cry watching the dad and just how sweet he is with this little girl and how distraught she is. We would have a very different reaction watching a dad scream at a two-year-old who is having a tantrum telling her to knock it off. You're so spoiled, whatever. So I encourage you to watch that video The other thing I think is important to know about co-regulation, again, I said how it's not, you have to have that before you have self-regulation. And we all do this as adults too. It's co-regulation is needed all the time. There are some times at work that my coworkers and I will say, I can do this, but if you could just be there to keep me right, Mm because I am not, if I could just borrow you for a minute doing this Mm -hmm. thing that I don't want to do. And we will do that even via Zoom or, you know, some kind of video call. We'll just be breathing and be calm and um, trying to help them stay regulated themselves. It's it's if you're at a funeral and a friend comes up and just grabs your hand and Mm -hmm. you can feel that like, okay, (laughs) maybe you take a breath or that is co-regulation. We do it mm-hmm. all the time with ev- with lots of people um, throughout our lifespan, but it's super important for our kids to be able to 
for us to do that with them so they can learn how to do it for themselves because you can't have self-regulation without co-regulation. So, you know, we've talked a little bit about the brain development piece of it, but a lot of it is, you know, we talked about the right and left side of the brain, but if you also cut your brain the other way, like top and bottom, Mm -hmm. you have a downstairs and an upstairs brain. So downstairs is really like, we call it like your reptilian brain. That's what a lot of animals have that is really pure emotion and survival and not a lot, not logic and reasoning. Mm-hmm. And then your upstairs brain is all of your perceptual, you know, your logic and reasoning and thought and all that kind of stuff. Kids' brains develop from the top up in addition to right to left. The bottom but, up. Uh, yeah, sorry, bottom up. Yeah. And so many times when they get overwhelmed, they get flooded on the bottom of their brain and it takes over the top of their brain. So when we talk about that logic and reasoning going offline, they get flooded by the emotion and the junk that happens in the downstairs brain. Most of us as adults, we function from the top down. We use logic and reasoning first or in conjunction Mm -hmm. with at least if we're, if we're having a healthy day. And so ideally then we will kind of meet in the middle with our kids where we will use our top down brain. They're doing bottom up. Mm. And that's when they get so dysregulated that they need help. And so again, that looks, it looks very, very different in infancy. What I will say, this might make people mad too, but if you think your infant can self soothe, you are mistaken. (laughs) That's not a thing they can do. They might be quiet. That doesn't mean they know how to self soothe. It's their brain absolutely does not have that power yet at all. That is why we do it for them almost exclusively in infancy. Mm -hmm. They can't do it at all. And so as they age, they get better at it. But that's because we have modeled that for them. And their mirror neurons have we've synced up and we've shown them how to do that. And then tantrums happen and we do things like maybe... You know, we did that Friday morning and we try and use our calm to help them. And then as they age a little bit more, then it changes. And then hopefully as they become like teenagers, you know, as that top part of their brain gets to the point where it is more developed, they're better able to self-regulate through those hard situations and need us less and less to know how to do that. But you notice I said adolescence. I mean, that's like 13, 14, 15 years old, like full into adolescence. I'm not talking about a 10-year-old. And so, again, you know, we've talked about how as kids age, for whatever reason, our expectations become unrealistic too early. Like we think Mm -hmm. of five, a seven, an eight-year-old, he knows better. He should be able to do that. And that's just not what brain science tells us. And so it's about rethinking how how we view that. And how we know, A, even adults sometimes need co-regulation, and our kids certainly need it longer than I think we think they do as parents. You know, we think a 10-year-old should absolutely, he should not be acting that way. That might be, that might be true. That absolutely might be true. We can, we can think he shouldn't be acting that way. He's acting inappropriately. That doesn't mean, though, that he doesn't need co-regulation in order to get to a point where he is back to okay. And that's the part that I think is so important to, I think it's important to know the brain science because I think, I don't know how you would argue with it. I mean, I'm sure some people would. I'd be happy to have that argument with somebody. (laughs) 
but I just don't, you know what I mean? I don't, I don't know because we know so much about brains now. I don't know how people or why people, other than maybe they just don't know that that's what we know about brains, but I don't know why, why we still fight that and can't let that go a little bit. Well, I think just in hearing you talk that about it up until this point, we don't know, like, you know, because that's your field of expertise, right? You know that this is what happens. This is brain development. They just don't have it. And I can hear you say that as a, as an adult, I can hear you say, this is what happens. This is when it happens. This is, they're not able to do this. But again, that is completely foreign to me. You know what I'm saying? Like, but there's a disconnect somewhere in my brain of applying that to my life because I, I've, that's foreign. I don't know. It's like a different language almost. So it makes sense when you say that and you explain it in a scientific way. But then when I try and apply it personally to a certain scenario or my kid or whatever it is, I, f- I feel like that's where the disconnect is. Do you, does that make sense? Yeah, I think so. I mean, I, I, I hear what you're saying. I don't know if it's because we haven't done a good job like people in my field and the neurobiology field of communicating this like to the world, although it's it's pretty easy to find the information now, or if it so much of it goes back to kind of what we talked about yesterday of it's a lot easier just to blame our kids. <laughs> no, well that and that's true. I think as I'm thinking through that even further while you're talking, it's hard work. It's work for me to take ownership as the adult, as the person who has a full brain, as a person who's able to process top down, think through, okay, it's silly for for him to be upset because I gave him a pair of blue socks instead of a pair of black socks, or he wanted to wear a sweatshirt, or he wanted to wear a Superman cape. Like that's, that's silly for him to be upset about that. But all he feels bottom up is... I wanted to wear a Superman cape to school today and I, I feel this big thing and I don't know what to do with it. But for me as the parent to think the other way and get to that point where I meet him in the middle and then I'm able to maybe have a a comp, depending on his age, I guess, have that conversation. I understand you're upset about that, buddy. I know, like, I know you love that cape. I know you wanted to wear it. That's a dumb example because is it really that big of a deal if he wants to wear a Superman cape? But that's not the point. Right. But me being able to think top down and meet him bottom up, that's work. And again, I, you know, and you said it in one of the episodes, that's why parents don't like it sometimes. It requires you to do the work. And it is easier for us to blame our kids. It is. It is. The thing I hope, though, that people take away from it is it is also the fact that I am the change agent that you know, right. Those times that, and I, I still feel this as a parent where I think like, I, I suck at this. This is <laughs> not, this is not going well. Something is wrong. Like, and I do talk to parents all the time who just think like, I don't like my kid anymore, or I don't know what to do. I'm exhausted. I'm overwhelmed. I don't want to feel this way about them. Um, it's influencing our marriage. Like all of these things that we hear parents mm-hmm. say, because we're just waiting for our kid to make these massive shifts in behavior and just expecting that to happen through, I don't know, osmosis or talking to them or taking them to therapy or whatever, whatever that parent might be doing. But what I hope is that it feels empowering to parents to know like, oh, 
I can do something about this. Mm-hmm. I'm the one who can make a change in this. I it's this is actually I have a, a huge role to play in this. This is not something I'm just waiting for him to do while it just tears apart our relationship and mm-hmm. we end up hating each other at the end. I have some ability to get in and and make some change here in a way that is meaningful and actually can be done fairly quickly particularly, right, like we said, the younger your kids are, the quicker that change can make. But certainly you can make changes with with older kids and teenagers and that kind of thing. But I just think so much of parenting has been if you don't have a child who responds well to the kind of traditional rewards and consequences and parenting from fear, right, like our kids do what we want because Mm -hmm. they're afraid. If you have a kid that doesn't respond well to that, then it just feels like, there's nowhere to go. And it can feel really hopeless and helpless. And my hope is that that this gives parents a little bit of insight and hope to know you can just make some, they really can be fairly minor tweaks or a different understanding or viewing that behavior a different way. And it can make a a significant impact on them um, and their behavior and your relationship with them. Yeah, I think it is hopeful to know that, yes, I am the driver of the bus here. I have the full brain. I have the experience. I have the willingness to try and turn it one way or another. But again, I still think that that is so foreign. And I know that if if people are listening to this podcast still after six episodes, <laughs> I feel like they're open to, just by listening, I feel like they're open to hear doing things a different way. Maybe it is there. They are experiencing some of what you said. Like, I don't even like my kids some days. This is yeah. miserable. Like, I just want to go hide in a hole. It Maybe it's motivated by that. Maybe it's motivated by sheer, like, willingness to, or a, a willingness and a want to work on myself. Like, a, I want to be the best version of myself and knowledge is power. And so maybe it's that. Maybe it's just you're curious, whatever it is. Again, it goes back to, like we said in the last episode, like it does require you doing your own work. And it is a lot easier, like in that video that you sent me of that dad with the little girl, of him helping to co-regulate her, you know, and I think you said something about, or I don't even think you asked me what my natural first response was, but after I was done crying, like the traditional parenting, I mean, and I want everybody to go watch that video because you will have a response initially when that kid starts having a tantrum. You're if you especially if you were raised in a traditional way and you parent that way, like you will have a reaction like normally they would just jerk that kid up and like dry it up right now with you know whatever it is. But then as you sit there and watch it's like 3 or 4 minutes, 5 minutes long as you watch that dad just so patient And you can just, like you said, you really do feel it in your body, like the love he has for that kid and wanting his daughter to be well and to be right and to be whole and to get back. Like you can feel that just by watching that video. As foreign as it is, I think the feeling that you have that mirrors what he's feeling, I think feels more natural than the other way. If you if we're real honest, yeah, because it's not enjoyable. We've all 
maybe not all of us, but we've all like had a kid having a tantrum and you jerk them up and like dry it up. You know, you're too old to act that way, act like a big kid, whatever it is. The feeling that you get internally when you do that, if you contrast with that, with the feeling that I had watching that dad lovingly co-regulate, help that child calm down. And then at the very end, when she just like literally collapses on him, just Mm -hmm. exhausted and just collapses on him and he just loves on her. I don't cry right now talking about (laughs) it, but like if you contrast those two things, I think you would have to admit that the, the, the loving, gentle, peaceful approach feels more natural in your body. And you didn't even actually experience it. You just watched it happen. Right. right. So if you can get if you can get to that point where you not only are open to seeing that different parenting style but also like can in a like a third party experience it like you have to see the value in it and then yeah. be willing to say it's at least worth a shot cuz when I do it this way it's miserable for everybody. Right. And one of the other the one of the other bonuses of that or the really key components or byproducts of co-regulation is that your kids learn to experience those negative emotions and how to get through them. So if you have a kid that's having a tantrum, and like you said, all we do is get get yourself together, you're Uh too big to be acting like that, and we don't allow them to move through that emotional process, they never learn how to do that. They never learn how to sit with that emotion and how to experience it, how to know what it feels like, how to know what to do with it, and just to know like, okay, I can I can survive that. I can survive that negative emotion. I can get myself to a point where I'm back okay, and then I can move on. If we don't let them do that process, they will never learn how to do that. And again, that doesn't mean those emotions or those experiences go away. They've, they've never had the ability to go from start to finish with them because we Mm -hmm. don't let them because it's uncomfortable for us or it's inconvenient for us or it makes us mad. But again, that's stunting their development because they have to learn how to have negative emotions and be okay Mm -hmm. with them. Not like them, but be okay with them. I have to learn how to be sad and just know that I'm sad and know that that's okay and then know how I cannot let that take me one way or the other, I can learn how to regulate that emotion. Mm -hmm. And if we don't let kids go through that, and yes, that starts by looking like tantrums that that's just what that looks like. As a teenager, it's slamming a door. Oh, my eight year old slams doors. (laughs) (laughs) But as a teenager, it's maybe sneaking out of the house, or it's calling you all kinds of names, or it's breaking curfew or it's all those the same kinds of things where they're having these big emotional responses and their behavior isn't good. It changes again as they get older, but we have to let them experience that. And we have to be, we have to be the top down brain that doesn't try to make it go away. That doesn't tell them it's bad. That doesn't squash it. We just have to be the one that lets it play out and helps them, lets them borrow our, the top of our brain in order to get to a place of regulation. Yeah. So can you, I mean, you gave a couple different examples of how that might play out at a different age group, whether it's an eight-year-old slamming a door or a teenager, you know, breaking curfew or sneaking out the window or whatever it is. Can you, and I guess you can pick which 
an age group that maybe just from your professional experience or just from parenting your kids, like play that out. Give me a scenario where you play that out from start to finish. And I guess you could take it, maybe take it either like different ways. Like if you handled it the the gentle way, or if you handled it the traditional way, like branch off both ways, but give me a scenario, like start to finish again, because I think examples for parents and thinking through, okay, my kid does something similar to that. This is a response that I could have, or this is the response that I do have. You know what I'm saying? Like, I feel like that's helpful. It has helpful for me. Yeah. But maybe that would be helpful to parents to kind of put a face, like their face and their kid's face on a scenario. Yeah. Again, it can look a million different ways. So I'll give as many kind of examples as I can. I'm not going to do the tantrum because truly that video is what we should do with tantrums. 100% all the time. Right. It's always, always what we should do with tantrums. There's a ton of research to say that tantrums are actually very healthy for young kids. Um, If you have school age kids who hold it together all day long at school, and then they come home and lose their ever loving mind, there is a healthiness about that being able to come home and do that. You know, our kids are supposed to act the worst at home. That's how Mm -hmm. that is supposed to go. Right. They should always be better behaved outside of our home. Always. Because home should be the safe place that can get everything. Right. When when we work with some kids who have zipped it up completely at home and are horrors at school, Mm-hmm. We start to think of like what what feels unsafe at home that they can't express that there, and it's mm-hmm. safe to express that at school. So I just want to make everybody feel better about themselves. They're supposed to go to school and be great, and then they're supposed to come home and be terrors. That's just how that's supposed to work. So the tantrums should always be like they were in the movie or the video, and so I'm not going to say much about that. Where I think sometimes it gets – it changes as they get older are things like, and we've done this with my kids and uh, my husband and I work back and forth of like, okay, that's, it's enough of, <laughs> <laughs> right. Okay. You need to go get your pajamas on in five minutes. And he says, I don't want to get my pajamas on in five minutes. I'm not going to. Okay. <laughs> okay. I know you don't want to. You still have to get your pajamas on in five minutes. That is what I would say. And I would stop there. And he can truly, he can say whatever he wants to after that. And sometimes he does and says, no, you can't make me. I'm not going to get my pajamas on in five minutes and you can't do anything about it. I'm going to sit right here on this floor. And what are you going to do about it? On a good day, I say nothing. And I just say like, yep, I understand. I understand you don't want to do that. I'll help you if you need help. But it has, I have to stay because what he's trying to do, he's trying to like, get an interaction and get a back and forth and, and kick me up with him. Now, not in like a, he's a, he's an evil kid kind of way. Um, There's some physiological response to that. If you have a kid that is super high energy, sometimes they want your arguments to be high energy, not be again, not because they're evil, but because that feels good to their bodies. That feels good to their systems. And so they, they sometimes try to get you to, to engage with them that way because that they like that. It feels good. Mm -hmm. And so again, on a good day, I wouldn't, I just don't respond and he can say whatever he wants. And then in five minutes, it's time to get your PJs on. Now, what that can sometimes look like if I'm not having a good day or my husband's not having a good day, 
is then we start like debating it. And <laughs> if you've ever tried to debate an eight-year-old, it doesn't go. <laughs> it doesn't go well. <laughs> Um, cause all kinds of implausible things start happening and there's no, there's <laughs> nowhere to go with it. So, you know, it might be like, well, I'm telling you it's, you've got five minutes and I'll show you what I can do to you in five minutes, or we'll <laughs> see what happens in five minutes. I think you should probably watch your tone. Why don't you, um, try that a different way and say that to me a little bit differently. And then I'm like, what? It's like a tennis match of like, how long, how long are we going to do this? What are we going to do? What are we going to do at the end of this? This, okay, stop. Just stop. 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 <laughs> Just stop. We're not going to do it. So that's, again, a very silly, basic example. It happens in our home regularly, though. And there's just, there's no need. It doesn't, it does not affect me when he says, like, what are you going to do about it? I don't know. Truly, he's eight. I can't. I'm not going to wrestle him into his pajamas, but we would do some different things. So I'm not trying to make threats to him or manhandle him or that kind of thing. So he's upset. He can say what he wants when he's upset for the most part. It doesn't, it doesn't affect me. It truly doesn't. Words don't truly impact me a whole lot. If you are someone that words do impact you a whole lot, you might need to do that a little bit differently. You might need to remove yourself from that situation. You still shouldn't get into a debate because, again, it just won't go well. But part of I think is I've been working with kids so long, I've been told all kinds of things about myself. And so words truly do not land with me and do not get me riled up. Physical presence gets me riled up a little bit more, but words don't. So you would you would just need to do that a little bit differently if you're if if words really amp you up fast you need to put in some guardrails for yourself of whether, again, like you leave the room or you put headphones in or whatever, you know, we could come up with a million different things to do for that. As a teenager, it's a very similar thing. And as teenagers age, parents, what I have noticed is parents like to take every situation and make it like this is the last time I'm ever going to speak to them. And I have to give them all of life's lessons all at one time. <laughs> and so it's like every negative thing a teenager does and parents start lecturing, it always ends up like they're going to end up in jail or dead or living under the bridge. Somehow <laughs> them not wanting to do their homework leads to them ending up in jail, dead or under the bridge. And I I get it because we want to, we just want to help our kids and make them understand some things. But, you know, not doing homework might be a good one for a teenager. They don't want to do their homework. So you can set some boundaries in your home to encourage them to do their homework. At the end of the day, you cannot control whether or not they do their homework. You cannot do that. There is no way that you can control the fact that they do their homework. Now, what you can say is, I have to check your homework before you can have TV or your your tablet or your phone or that kind of thing or and you so you can put some boundaries in place that way but don't kid yourself and think that that is controlling their behavior. It's not. You, mm -hmm. They could still say, "All right, screw you. I'll go sit in my sit in my bed and read a book. I don't care. I'm not doing my homework." Okay. The natural consequence for not doing your homework is you fail and you don't do well in that class. And then we can talk about maybe what that means and that's real hard for parents to think that they they would allow their kids to fail, but we need to allow our kids to fail. Right. And we need, we cannot, we can't protect them from all of that. So instead of getting into a shouting match about their homework, I don't want to do that. I don't want to shout with my kids about anything. 
again, I can put some expectations in place. The expectation is that you do your homework before you watch TV, but I can't control that. And so we talk about it. Maybe I offer like, would you like me to sit and help you with your homework? Do you want to do it with your friend? Do you want me to get you a special like beanbag like that you sit on on the floor? Do you we can talk about can I participate in this a little bit with you? Are there things mm-hmm. you that would make this easier for you? Maybe it's that it's too hard and they don't know what to do. So by screaming at them and yelling at them, you shut all that down. Mm-hmm. But from a co-regulation standpoint, you could you could ramp that up pretty quick. And again, then we go into like, you're, if you don't do your homework, you're never going to get into college. And if you don't get into college, you'll never get a good job. And then that's how they end up under the bridge. <laughs> So it's, but like, he's 13. Like, we just hang on, slow your roll. (laughs) He's okay. He's okay. Yes, we want him to learn how to do his homework. But I am, I am much more interested in like, why didn't he want to do his homework? Why doesn't he want to do his homework? Sometimes it's that parents expect kids to come home from school. And the minute they step foot in the door, do their homework. That's if you told me that I've been working all day. And as soon as you get home, I Mm -hmm. want you to do the last 30 minutes. I would say like, I don't, I don't want to do that right now. I need a minute, like give me 30. I need a minute. Okay. So some of it is, again, what I think is parents think that's losing power or control. But like I said, I'm much more interested in understanding like, why doesn't he want to do his homework? What would make him more interested in doing his homework? And how can I help with that? So mm-hmm. whether that's talking to them and saying, what is it about this that you don't like? How can I help make it easier? Do you need an hour break? Do you like to do it after dinner? Maybe they're a nighttime homework person. Do you want to sit in your bed? You know, I would never make a kid sit at the table if they say they want to sit in their bed and do it. Okay, I don't care. Because my ultimate goal is just that you get your homework done. So again, it goes back to some of the co-regulation comes before it even gets escalated, right? Right. Of I'm co-regulating in a way that you, I'm not going to let you get, I'm not, I'm going to do my best to keep you here with me in a way, in a way that is healthy. And I'm not going to contribute to your escalation. I'm going to at least keep myself low enough to keep you down here with me to keep your top brain as as locked in as I can. And to check out when I see that's that's not working anymore. So even now, sometimes if I see my kids starting to get escalated when I'm trying to talk to them about something, mm-hmm. I will say like, okay, let's talk about this later. Let's just take a break. It's fine. We'll come back to this later. We'll talk about it a little bit later. Because I'm, again, the the purpose is to have a conversation. It's not to win. I'm not trying to win. Right. With my kids. I'm not trying to do that. So those are the examples I could come up with off the top of my head and how that would change age to age. But it's all very similar of really just recognizing I can't control my kids and my system, their system reacts to mine and vice versa. But I'm the grown up, so I need to be more in control of mine. That's my responsibility. Yeah. So those two examples, and I'm thinking, okay, so the the little girl who I don't know if she's not even two in that video. So the tantrum of her, she obviously just feels this big thing and just loses it. It's the same thing as you tell Lincoln to put his pajamas on in five minutes. He feels this big thing. I don't want to put my pajamas on. I tell my 16-year-old to do their homework. They don't want to do their homework. They just got home from school. They feel this big thing, right? So 
it looks completely different, obviously, because there's language, there's experience, there's opinions as you get older and they develop from the bottom up. There, it looks different, but my response in each of those scenarios should look the same. Yeah. In yeah. large part, in that in a, with a two-year-old and she's on the floor having a tantrum, I can't have a conversation with her like I did with my 16-year-old. Right. Like, help me understand why you don't want to do your homework. Like, is there, you know, whatever, is it that there's there something with the teacher? I can't have that conversation with a two-year-old. What I can do is have that conversation non-verbally by sitting and allowing you to feel, to sit in the feelings of this big thing and borrow my calm, Mm -hmm. have that conversation non-verbally, I'm speaking to you with my nervous system. Yes. And this is how we process that. Yes. So even though it looks different at each age, my response essentially looks the same, but sometimes it's done non-verbally, and sometimes it's done with long, drawn-out conversations, which I want as a parent. I want Mm -hmm. my 16-year-old to be able to say, you know, I just, uh, this teacher, I just have this thing with this teacher. I don't feel like they like me. I feel like I can't do anything right in that class. And if all I do is shut that conversation down and don't allow them to feel this thing, but let's talk through what do we do with the thing, Mm -hmm. then I missed it. Yep. Yeah. Yeah. hundred percent. And you'll see the, yes, they're experiencing the same thing as they age. The behavior changes because hopefully Right. We're getting closer to the top. We're moving from bottom to top. So an eight-year-old developmentally should not have a tantrum the same way a two-year-old does. Kicking and screaming. Now, every once in a while, an eight-year-old will. But he's further up in his brain. Mm -hmm. He's gotten closer to the top than a two-year-old. The 16-year-old is much closer to the top than a two-year-old or an eight-year-old. And so... What that also means, though, is if you have an eight-year-old that is tantruming like a toddler, chances are they missed the teaching when they were toddlers. Right. They have not been given the opportunity. There may be some other like physical or, you know, biological or neuro stuff going on, but they have not gotten up far enough from from the bottom in their brain. So if you have an eight-year-old that is tantruming like that, to me, that means you should do that tantrum the same way you would for a two-year-old. And they've got to get through it in order mm-hmm. to, to move up the brain from the, from the bottom to the top. And if, again, if we don't let them do that, which as an eight-year-old, if you're tantruming like that, there's a lot of people telling you you're too old for that and, and they don't have any patience for it and all that stuff. But to me, we just, he didn't get it back then and Mm -hmm. we got to kind of go back and get it but yeah the behavior changes for the kids as they move as their brain develops and we give them Mm -hmm. those skills and so yeah we would expect those to they're they're moving from the bottom up to the top which makes perfect sense when you (laughs) yeah but i but there seems to be some disconnect i think especially if there's an eight-year-old having a tantrum, like I don't want to take ownership of my part in that. Like maybe I didn't allow them to feel those big things when they were three or four. And maybe, so now when they feel a big thing, they may not always do it, but they sometimes do still have a tantrum. And so 
it's hard for me as an adult to take take my the mm-hmm. ownership and the responsibility of my part in that, which I think all of this stuff that we're talking about, our participation in the process, I think you said, cannot be understated. Like, it's, we're the people with the full brains. Right. We right. are the people that know Yes, it's silly to be upset about that. He doesn't know that. And to think that he, as an eight-year-old, wants to, like, have a tantrum. He doesn't want to feel that way. Like, even Sawyer, who's five, when he had that meltdown in the car, like, he doesn't want to feel... That feels terrible. Right. Like, even as adults, when we have, like, a... Like a meltdown and we just, maybe we stuff something down for so long and then it just explodes out and we're crying and we're screaming and then we get to the end of it and we're exhausted. Nobody wants to feel that. Yuck. Right. Nobody wants to feel that. Right. So, yeah, it's it's on us. Like, I, I mean, we, we, we keep repeating that, but the more we talk through all that stuff, like, it really does come, it's, a lot of it is on us. Yeah. And again, it's not meant to shame parents, if uh -uh. you have kids, you know, that are older and and having behavior problems and all that stuff, it is in no way meant to shame or blame or even imply that you're doing anything wrong. It's just trying to give you another tool in your toolbox of something that like, okay, let me try this because nothing else is working. Or let me think about that a little bit differently. Or let me just try to like my kid again. Right. Because now I understand they're doing the best they can. And that's what's most important. So. Yeah. Not everyone reads the the neurobiologic biology magazines. Well, or you should. It's you very in your free time. It's very interesting. It's very interesting. <laughs> <laughs> well, Leah can just give everyone the cliff notes. Sure. And the highlights. Right. 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 <laughs> okay. I think we, these tend to go a little long, but I I'm okay with it, and hopefully everyone's still there, but. Yeah, I think we're going to wrap it up here. Anything else you would like to add, sister? No. Okay. So (laughs) I guess we will. (laughs) I guess thank you for listening. If you do like it, it being the podcast, share it, like it, subscribe to it, and tell all your friends. And we will catch you guys on the next one. Bye. Thanks for listening to this episode of Parental Development. If you found this helpful at all, please leave us a five-star review on Apple Podcasts or wherever you choose to stream. And if you have questions that you'd like answered on the show, email info at parentaldevelopment.com. We'd love to hear from you to know that someone else is actually listening. And remember, we're all doing the best we can in this parenting thing. So survive the day and keep the kids alive. See you next time.